be back in Paris, Tennessee, and I appreciate the opportunity. Enjoyed our time with you the last time. Some new faces uh, this time, and uh, some that we had met the last time, and I'm grateful to be here. I appreciate the Ronies opening up their home to me, and uh, we had a great time of fellowship last night. Some tremendous beef stew, and uh, that was a blessing. And uh, uh, Tank didn't even bark when I came downstairs. I think he likes me as much as I like him. And uh, so it's been a, it's been a blessing uh, already. Had a good week in Kentucky, and the Lord seemed to be gracious to help me. And um, I left last Saturday and went to Kansas City. I was there this past Sunday morning, and uh, then the week in Kentucky. And the Lord willing, be headed home tomorrow. And I'm looking forward to that. I miss Mama. Amen. And it's kind of funny, the Lord lets us travel like we do, and it seems like when I'm away for a few days, uh, I call and she says, are you coming home yet? And then when I'm at home for a few weeks, she says, don't you have a meeting to go to? <laughs> so, but the Lord's been, uh, the Lord's been faithful and he's been gracious to me. First Peter chapter five this, this morning, and uh, I feel like this is where the Lord has put my heart and been, been helping me lately. And uh, I found that preaching is a lot of just uh, uh, the Lord using what he's helped you with to help others through you sometimes. And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate him doing that and appreciate his word. And uh, thankful for the service thus far. Enjoyed the songs. The first one there I had not heard. And, uh, of course, love and can it be. We'll try to this song. And hard to believe that fellow was an Armenian. Amen. <laughs> when you listen to that song, I love it. It's tremendous. But First uh, Peter 5, and uh, we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer before we look at the Scripture together and just ask him one more time to help us. I used to tell uh, the folk where I pastored, we'd always pray before we read. I said, I can't even read without him. And uh, when I read his word, I want him to, uh, to, to be with me. Amen. But let's read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Uh, we'll pray first. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, for the cross. Lord, just for the reality of the forgiveness of sins, for right standing with you this day. Uh, we don't take that for granted today, Lord. We're just so grateful for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you for this uh, nucleus, this congregation of people that have assembled here on the Lord's Day. I thank you, Lord, for how you're helping them and strengthening them. Lord, thank you that you are mindful of this people. And Lord, I pray that you continue to bless and help them and give them that that they need along the way, every need, Lord, physical, financial, spiritual, emotional, mental, all of it, Lord. We, uh, we know that every good gift comes from you. And I pray, God, that you would pour out your blessings upon this church and uh, Brother Ken, Miss Abigail, Lord, and uh, touch him as he leads. I pray you'd anoint him each time he stands and, Lord, that you would help him and give him understanding of your word. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that your help would be evident uh, among this congregation. I pray today, Lord, that you would touch us. Uh, Lord, I know my need, and I'm desperately in need of you. And, Lord, I know that I can do nothing apart from your power and your help. And so I beg you for utterance and unction today to preach your word. And, Lord, I pray you give us ears to hear. And, uh, God, hearts to obey you and to walk in the light that you give us according to the word. And, Lord, that we would just uh, take it to heart today and that you would mold us and make us what you'd have us to be. And uh, Father, above it all, I pray that your son would be honored, yes. that he would be reverenced in our midst as we look at the word of God. And uh, I love you that I love you today because you first loved me, and I thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. 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 All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we'll read the first 11 verses. <clears throat> The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. And I'm just going to point out a little statement in verse 12. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. I love the epistles of Peter. Matter of fact, the last time I was here, I think I preached out of the first chapter of 2 Peter. And uh, I had the privilege of preaching through these epistles while I pastored. And uh, the Lord helped me tremendously in those seasons of being able to preach these books verse by <laughs> verse and just see the meat and the good, uh, the good help that's in them. And just to remind me that uh, we have a God who even though we will suffer, he is with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll take care of us. And uh, it's a call to steadfastness in the midst of that. And uh, I love Peter in general. I love to read about his life. He reminds me of myself so many times. I, too, have occasionally put my foot in my mouth, so to speak, and spoken out of turn. And we find that that was Peter's lot. But the same Peter that would deny the Lord three times by the fire would be brought out of his mouth a confession three times of his love for Christ and his dedication to feed God's sheep. And uh, that is a privilege that Peter enjoyed. That's a privilege that I've enjoyed over the years. But in this first epistle, of course, Peter has addressed what he calls the strangers that have been scattered. Uh, They're all over the area known then as Asia Minor. And uh, they've been persecuted. They've professed faith in Christ. Some Uh, in our day would try to say that they were all Jews and that this has nothing to do with (laughs) Gentiles or has nothing to do with the age we're in. And I say to all of that hogwash, that's just not the case. This was written to saints. There are Jews, no doubt, prominently, but there were Gentiles as well. He referred to them as those that had not been a people, those who uh, were apart from God and were not a nation, he says. And so It's those that had professed faith in Christ and were now under the gun. They were being persecuted for their faith. And we don't know a whole lot about that, Uh, especially not like others of our brothers and sisters around the world that are really facing uh, dangerous circumstances simply because they've believed upon the Lord Jesus. And there are places that a public baptism can can get you excommunicated from your family and from your uh, town and even killed. And these were faithful despite that, but he's writing to encourage them to remain faithful. And he's writing them to remind them that in this they are partakers not only of their own suffering, but of the sufferings of Christ. And if there's a worthy cause to suffer, his name is Jesus. And a lot of people are willing to suffer for a lot of things, aren't they? It seems amazing to me sometimes when I watch the dedication people have to various of their own idols. I see often a picture of a, a person in a stands at some stadium in a football game with a couple inches of snow surrounding them and they're wrapped up in a blanket 
I've got a friend who was addicted to drugs when the Lord found him and saved him. And he talks about many a winter morning sitting on the porch, wrapped up in a blanket, freezing to death, keeping lookout in case the law was to come and try to shut down there because he said, and this is what he said. He said, I was doing that for my God. And the suffering that people are willing to endure for their gods. But us, as God's people, as God's true people, we must face the fact that we may have to suffer ourselves and be willing to do that. And Peter's addressing them. Peter's, he, there's some great things throughout this book. But here in the final chapter, he wishes to end his letter with some exhortations intended for the elders, which are among those scattered believers. It's remarkable that though they are experiencing great affliction and though they have had to flee their homes and lands and families, he still assumes that they will still carry on in the instruction of the saints from the scriptures. In the opening verses of this chapter, they're encouraged to feed the flock of God, to oversee them with a ready mind and to lead them by example. It is expected that the normal means of grace accomplished by the assembling of the saints together will continue despite the fact that they are being persecuted. And they did not use this as an excuse to cease to gather. And uh, what a blessing that is and an encouragement to us. Uh, Back home a lot of times you get just a few flakes of snow and, and church is canceled. I was encouraged last week as I went to the church there in Kansas City. It started snowing on me on the way in, and overnight a good two and a half inches had fallen. And uh, we went to the early service at the church there, and they had a pretty good packed-out house. People had still come. I'm encouraged by that kind of thing. And uh, it seems like we're always, uh, in these days, seeing people making excuses not to assemble rather than finding ways to do it uh, anyway. And, here was the people persecuted, but they were still going to be getting together. And we need each other, don't we? We need the assembly of the saints. We need to gather and to congregate. And so he expected that they would continue to do that. And these elders are reminded that in doing so, the Lord would return and that there would be a crown of glory to be received. He mentions that there in verse number four, when the chief shepherd shall appear. You shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Then in verse 5, the younger of, of the, the people are addressed. This may refer, some say, to young ministers or servants in the church, but others say it refers to the whole of the flock. I think all of that can be a little forced because there were no doubt some who were older uh, than even the elders. I think it's reference to those who were younger in the faith. They are told to submit unto the elder, to look to them for guidance and to yield to them in the making of decisions and trying times. Uh, It was needful to follow those who had experience. Uh, We must continue to do this throughout our lives. No matter how old we get in the faith, somebody's been around longer than we have. Somebody's been walking with the Lord longer than we have. And it's good to keep this notion in mind of, submitting ourselves unto the elder. It's necessary for our personal growth. Then the apostle says in verse number five, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Here we find that the elder must also submit to the younger. And uh, I love this principle. You find it all throughout scripture. And often when there's a command for one group to submit to the other, it's followed up by a command for everybody to submit to everybody else. Right. Even in Ephesians 5, when he talks about, uh, we go, the, the, the people love to go to the verse there that says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. But right before that, he says, submit yourselves one to another. Mm-hmm. And there's a mutual submission that ought to take place and a mutual surrender of our own will and a yielding of our own selves to those around us. And that's nothing new. In Philippians 2 and 3 and 4, we read, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so this matter of mutual submission is mentioned and 
He says the way to do this is to be clothed with humility. Uh, We are to wear humility as a garment. It is to uh, constitute our spiritual appearance, if you will. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. A church filled with people who are submitted to one another and clothed in humility is a church where you'll have a hard time finding contention. It's a place where you'll have a hard time finding any strife. And I found that no matter what strife I've seen or been engaged with and encountered and even probably caused, it's always because one or both parties, and usually it's both parties, refuse to submit themselves unto one another. Now, upon giving this word of exhortation, it appears that Peter's reminded of, the, uh, of a verse of Scripture that we find in Proverbs chapter 3. In verse 34 of that chapter, it says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. The word scorn there has the idea of boasting or arrogance. It's defined by one lexicon as to make mouth at, uh, to talk arrogantly. It, uh, it means to mock or to deride. It seems to have some of the, uh, it seems to have been that some of the new converts in this congregation or some of the new converts in this uh, situation were not happy with the leadership. And they were getting kind of vocal about it, apparently, because it refers to the speech of one. And they were making mouths at the elders. I think about uh, when I was a kid, you know, maybe an adult would give a command to us youngins. And all of a sudden, you'd see one of them go, you ever seen somebody do that? That's the idea of this word. Uh, they, those that would make mouths at, kind of mock, and maybe roll their eyes, or even talk arrogantly toward, that's what was was apparently going on in the midst here. They didn't like the direction that they were being led and surely thought that they could do it better. And so uh, he was reminded of this verse, and of course here it refers to one's attitude toward God himself. Now my granny wouldn't put up with that kind of behavior. And if she saw you do it, you'd know she saw you. And uh, she could whoop better than my daddy could. Amen. She knew how to do it. Uh, but uh, we think about the reason she would do that. There was disrespect there. There was dishonor there. And how much more when we have that same attitude toward our God and our Father. And uh, as, as audacious as that sounds, we are guilty of that at times. We do have that in us, don't we? It's not something that we've had to learn. It's just there. And so Peter In reference to that proverb, he writes, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. With the mention of this grace in verse number uh, five, uh, we really have what is the tone or the theme of this passage before us. In verse 10, we read a wonderful title for God. There he's called the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Down there in the verse that I read in verse 12, he says, I've uh, written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. And I kind of just want to expound upon that subject of the God of all grace, the true grace wherein we stand this morning. And I would mention, first of all, the objects of God's grace. Look at the phrase again there in verse number five. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. He resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. The little word resisteth is a terrifying word. And uh, I I began to study this word and just look at its definitions, and it's really frightening. It means to set an army in array against. It means to place oneself in opposition to another. Now, this is addressed in this book to the saved. These are people that have been redeemed. These are people that have been born again. We'll look at that in a moment, but here he's telling them 
that pride would cause God to set himself in array as an army against an individual. I thought about the words of Gamaliel in Acts 5.39 when he stood to address the Pharisees about their treatment of the apostles. He warned them that they might be found even to fight against God. What a, what a notion that a man would place himself in that position against God, that he would say, I will stand in opposition to God. I mean, it just seems absurd, doesn't it? But the scripture is telling us here that pride in us will do that for it will do that to us. It will place us in opposition to God. The lost are said to be the enemies of God. The carnal mind is enmity with God. But thank God now we that are saved have been reconciled to God. I love some things that he tells us in chapter one. Turn there quickly. Just thinking about our position in Christ. He mentions in verse number two, our election of God. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit and uh, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here we find his, uh, his election of a people to draw and to save. And he tells us how he would accomplish this through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ. We've been set apart, sanctified, purified by the Spirit of God, set apart and chosen by God. Then in verse number three, he mentions our regeneration. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm grateful this morning for the new birth. And that's what salvation is. So many times in our day, it's been watered down to nothing more than an intellectual decision, nothing more than some uh, adherence to a ritual or uh, if you just get baptized and just say the prayer and just join the church and this and that, people say that's salvation. But that's really nothing to do with uh, what God has done in the heart of a person that's been saved. It's a supernatural occurrence Amen. that only God can facilitate in our lives. Amen. And I'm glad that I've been born again. Amen. Amen. A new creature with a new nature, not what we were. Amen. And then we're secured to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so he's dealt with these things before. He's showing us what we are in Christ and how we got here. But now he says, pride even in the heart of those in this condition, even of those that are in position can stand us once again in opposition to God. They can place us at enmity with God. We are the objects of his sovereign love and grace, but if we get lifted up, we will be once again in opposition. Now, this doesn't imply the loss of our salvation. Uh, our position in Christ will not change, but as saints, as the saved, we can get cross with God. Mm -hmm. And pride is a surefire way for that to take place. Now, the other side of the coin is far better. God resisteth the proud, but God giveth grace to the humble. Mm -hmm. I love the present tense of both of these words, resisteth and then giveth. Amen. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be in a position where God is continually resisting I want to be in one where God is consistently giving unto me. I need from him. Amen. And uh, this, this word giveth grace. Oh, it's a wonderful word grace is. It's rich and broad in its definition. I love to study it. And each time I do, it's just renewed in my heart the, the wonder of the grace of God. It's, as many have said, no wonder that John Newton would call it amazing grace because it really is amazing when we think that the God of heaven uh, would move in our direction with any favor whatsoever. A few meanings that I've come across over the years. It's that which bestows occasion or pleasure. 
One, one lexicon said it's the friendly disposition from which an act occurs. It's a sense or feeling of the favor bestowed. It's the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, another says. And of course, we've all heard the definition of unmerited favor or God's riches at Christ's expense. We've heard those acronyms. But grace is the extension of that which is good to an undeserving object solely given on the basis of the benevolence of the giver. That's what grace is. And our God is a God of all grace. And our God is one who, when there is uh, humility in his people, he will bestow this grace in exceeding ways. I don't know about you, but I need grace today. I needed it yesterday, and I'll get up in the morning if the Lord lets me draw breath, and I'll need it again tomorrow. And I'm glad that God is one who giveth grace. It's promised here to the humble. Now, grace is unmerited favor, and we understand that. But there are degrees of grace that we can enjoy as his people. And as we humble ourselves, God is inclined, according to his nature, to pour out grace upon us. So in verse 6 he says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Here we have more motivation to this humility. First, the mightiness of God's hand. You'll never be successful while standing in proud opposition to God no matter what you endeavor to do. It'll never happen. There'll be no success. But it's also a reminder that he does all things well and has power over our circumstances so that we ought to humbly submit to him in them. What a reminder to these uh, poor saints that are being persecuted, that are being chased, that are being uh, sought out for harm. And I mean, I don't know about you, but when things don't go my way, I tend to grumble and I tend to get dissatisfied and discontented. But not when I remember that I have a God in heaven who loves me, who cares for me, who gave his son for me, that is orchestrating all the circumstances of my life. And then I can say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're doing right, and I know you're doing it well, and I can humble myself under his mighty hand. He knows what he's doing, and he is still in charge. And so we ought to submit to him. But then he says, another motivation here is he says that he will exalt you in due time. He will exalt the humble soul. And we read it this morning. It was just a blessing that I'd had this in my notes. And we read Psalm 75 and the call to worship. For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and he setteth up another. And the way up, one preacher used to say, is down. Right. The way up is down. And that's true, isn't it? Yes. And the pride is the perception <laughs> that we either are or ought to be in a position above or better than our current one. Mm-hmm. And that really is a, a good summation of what pride is. And it's when we think we ought to be in a position above the one we're in or that when we think we are in a position better than we're in. That's why I think it was Paul who wrote, uh, we ought not to think better of ourselves than we ought to think. And uh, we get a perception of ourselves that's different than our reality or that we think should be different than our reality. It desires to always be greater, always be more revered, always be more respected. But humility enables us to understand our true condition before God and man as not worthy of anything at all. Any true and lasting exaltation must come from the Lord himself. It will not come on our schedule, but it comes in due time according to his will. And of course, we understand that that may mean different things for different people, Um, But uh, ultimately it means our exaltation as uh, in the presence of God in heaven for eternity. But it cannot be rushed and there are no shortcuts to be taken to this manner of God's exalted place for his people. Of course, the greatest example of this is our Lord himself. I already referenced Philippians 2, 3, and 4, but verses 5 through 11 there say, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Think of the exalted state that our Lord held before he became incarnate and came to this earth. He's God, amen. Being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And here we see a progressive condescension of our Lord. He's in the form of God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He became a in the form of a servant. He took on him the likeness of men. And then it says, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, as humbled as he already was, just becoming man. Now he's humbled himself more and became obedient unto death. Uh, the, the God of heaven, and we read the second verse of that song, and can it be? Uh, the immortal dies. God can't die. But in order to die, God became man. Even unto death, he was obedient. And then it goes farther and says, even the death of the cross, what a death he chose to die. Not just any death. He died as grueling and as cruel and as painful a death as could be died for us. What humility we see in our Lord. And he is the example. But then we find that exaltation in his life too, don't we? Verse nine of that chapter, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Amen. Father. There is our example of humility. Micah 6, 8 says, He that has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Right. Humility. But notice something with me in verse 6. It doesn't end with a period. It doesn't say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, period. We have there a colon. Uh, it's not the end of the sentence. This tells us that in verse 7, there's going to follow either a list or a description or an explanation or definition of what has been said. Here, I believe, in this case, it is an explanation or a demonstration, if you will, how is this humility, mm -hmm. how is this humbling of ourselves under the mighty hand of God demonstrated in our lives? Look at verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Now, when I think of someone who's humble or someone who's demonstrating humility, a lot of things might come to mind. You think of people who would let someone go before them or would give up something they had to meet the need of another. You can think of all manner of things that would point us to the humility in a person. But here, the suggestion is that humility is demonstrated when we cast all our care upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for us. Several things could be said about that. First of all, I want to just look at that little word care. I hear people quote this a lot of times and they say, casting all your cares upon him. That's not what it says. It says care. It's the same word uh, that's translated be careful for nothing. It has to do with anxiety. It has to do with something that would distract, something that would uh, cause us fear, something that would uh, attract our attention and distract it from the Lord himself. And this may be a variety of things that come together and make this care that would distract us and cause us to be anxious. It's worry. That's what this word is. Casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. I would say it like this this morning. What has you worried? What has you concerned? What has you anxious uh, many things can do that in our lives. When it comes to our home life, we have those concerns for our children, for our family members. 
Uh, we see people going the wrong direction and things like that, and it troubles us. Uh, maybe it's financial things that put a strain upon us, and we worry about how we're going to take care of this bill and how we're going to accomplish this need around our house. And sometimes it's uh, just uh, just uh, uh, the, the, the cares of life that seem to uh, just uh, assail us every day. And sometimes in church life, we have those fears and those cares and those anxieties and this didn't go the way we wanted and uh, people leave and people, uh, just various things happen. And then you see people in the congregation that are on the cusp of real important decisions and it seems they'll make the wrong one. And so there's all of these things that are anxieties to us. But here's what we do. We get lifted up in pride and decide that we can affect those things by our own strength, by our own ability, by our own actions and by our own worry, that's pride. That's what he's saying. When we worry about those things, when we're troubled about those things, that's pride. And what that does, according to our text, is set God in opposition to us. That's kind of hard to hear, but it's true. Casting all your care upon him. Listen, whatever it is that's got you worried, whatever it is that's got you anxious, Cast it on him. Mm -hmm. Be humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and take all of that and just throw it on Jesus. Your shoulders aren't broad enough. Your back's not strong enough. Your capabilities aren't skillful enough to take care of whatever that is. But we have a Savior today who can and who will. And all he's saying to us is just... Get over yourself. Right. Get over your own qualities and your own ability and forget about what you can do and give it to me. I can handle it. Amen. That's the ultimate demonstration mm. of humility. That's good, brother. Casting all your care upon him. Amen. And I love the word casting here. It's not a gradual handing of something over. Sometimes we like to... You know, when I was training guys on bread routes, when I was a bread man, we'd let them start taking over a little bit at a time of what they'd need to do till finally we felt ready. Now they can handle the burden of this. That's not the word here. The word here is they come in and they've got to load the truck and they've got to sort the bread and they've got to drive and they've got to find the stuff and all of that at once. And this is to say, Lord, I'm done trying. I'm done working. I'm done worrying. And just cast it on him all at once, instantly. It's not even going to phase him. Amen. It's not even going to affect him. Just throw it on him. He can handle it. <coughs> that is humility. That is the absence of pride. But why would we do this? He tells us in verse 7, For he careth for you. Wow. <laughs> Jesus cares for us. The God of heaven cares for us. I don't know who the mayor of Paris, Tennessee is, and probably he doesn't know any of you by name, maybe the, maybe the pastor because you got a storefront here, but he doesn't care about you. Right. Not till election time anyway when he needs a vote. The president and the governor and all these, all these people that this world looks at and says, now there's somebody, there's somebody that's important. They don't care about you. But the all-important one, the supreme God of all the universe, has given us assurance in his word that he cares for us. Right. He is a father unto us. That's not just some name he applied to himself. He's telling us that because he loves us. He's taken it upon himself to provide for us and to meet our needs and to protect us. And if he said he'll do that, he'll do it. Amen. But we'll never know until we cast that care upon him and give it to him to do. But he careth for you. What an encouragement that that is. So we see the objects of his grace. But then notice the opposition in God's grace. Verse 8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. The opposition in God's grace. There's a lot of folk on the TV that call themselves preachers that'll convince you that if you're really in grace that you won't have any opposition. 
and that everything will just be smooth and silky the rest of your days. And anybody that's been saved four minutes knows better than that. And so that's how I know they're not saved. They would know better than that if they were. Say amen right there. It's okay. We know where they're at. But the opposition in God's grace, see, before we're saved, we're going with the flow. We're going in the same direction as this world and as the devil. But when God redeemed us and pulled us out of darkness and put us in light, we started going contradictory to this world system. And we're going against the grain here. And when you go against the grain, it gets tough. Amen. And uh, that's what he's saying here. Listen, uh, humility is not in, uh, it's not common. And when we humble ourselves before God and begin to go his direction and begin to yield ourselves to him, we come in direct opposition with the devil and with the powers of this world, the powers of darkness. And so he tells us here the description of our opposition. He is our adversary. He is against us. God is for us, but the devil is against us. And here's what's scary. Uh, the devil that's against us when we're in God's favor can do very little to us. But when we get lifted up in pride, then the Lord turns on us. Amen. And that's really kind of the connotation. We can get in trouble in a hurry. But an adversary is one who wants to harm. He's one who wants to hurt. He's one who wants to destroy he comes to kill and to steal and to destroy, John, uh, Jesus said in John 10. The adversary. He is the accuser. He's called here the devil. That word means the accuser. He accuses us, doesn't he? He likes to remind me of my past. And every now and then I fail and give him opportunity to hammer me with my present. But I'm glad that when that does happen, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who's making intercession. But all the devil loves to bring accusations. He'll accuse us. He'll make accusations against God. He's been doing that from the beginning, hasn't he? And God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods, having knowledge of good. He said, oh, the Lord's holding out on you. There's a better thing. There's something greater. There's something more enjoyable. There's something more pleasurable. And if you'll just go my route, I'll give that to you because the big mean Lord doesn't want you to have it. And the devil will make accusations against God. And I'm sure he was doing that in the lives of these people. Here they are. They would profess Christ and everything's coming against them. And the devil would jump on their shoulder and say, now look what this following Jesus business has got you. Look at the state you're in. You're without a place to lay your head. You're without your family. You've lost loved ones. And all of this, and oh, no doubt, he would begin to accuse God himself. He's our adversary. He walketh about, the Bible says, as a roaring lion. He loves to make noise. He loves to strike fear in us by the things that he allows us to hear. And he's walking about. He's, he's busy this morning. I think about Job often, especially when I come to passages like this and how the devil had to report to God. Aren't you glad the devil has to report to God? And uh, he reported to God. And the Lord said, where you been? He said, I've been walking around down there in the earth. And we know what he was doing. Peter tells us he was seeking whom he may devour. And I hope my name never comes up in the context that Job's did. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, it turned out he had considered him. He said, yeah, but I can't touch him. You've got him hedged about on every side and I can't get to his life. And yeah, he's faithful. And yeah, he prays. And yeah, he sacrifices and he does all of that. But it's because you've let him have it so good. If you, just, if you just give him a little trouble, if you just let me get my hands on him, he'll curse you before your face. And the Lord said, have at it. Boy, that scares me. I don't, I don't want that ever happen. Right. And the Lord turned him loose on Job. And he found out the hard way. And some people are doing this for real. Amen. God's really done a work for some folk. And Job wouldn't curse God, but instead he blessed the name of the Lord. And you know the devil jumped on his shoulder. You know his friends did. What lousy comforters those guys were. Job, you must have missed it. You sinned somewhere. God wouldn't allow this to come to your life. All the accusations, but the activities walking about, he wants to destroy, he wants to devour. The devil doesn't like that there's a church in this building. He doesn't like what you're doing. He's against it and he'll fight it tooth and nail. And every step we take closer to the Lord is a step we have to take over the opposition of 
Satan and our flesh and this world. But then the defense against this opposition. First of all, we must watch. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Sobriety there, the idea of having one's faculties in uh, control and being able to think clearly, being able to operate clearly, not being clouded in our judgment, having our, our minds informed by the scriptures as to what to do and when to do it, knowing how to try the spirits and uh, see whether they be of God. And then he said, be vigilant. I always like to define that word this way. It means to have your head on a swivel, just to know what's going on all around you. Uh, my wife and I, when we go out to eat, most of the time she remembers, or wherever we go in public, most of the time she remembers that I'm going to want to have my face toward the door. I want my back against the wall because if something goes down, I want to be able to at least get shot first, right? I mean, maybe if they shoot me first, they'll leave her alone. I don't know what I can do depending on what happened, but I want to be ready for it. I want to see it coming. I don't want to be caught off guard. I, we are talking this morning, Tank. They said every time somebody comes down, he barks. So when I start down the stairs, I say, Tank, I'm coming down. <laughs> and so far, that's helped him. He's not been too afraid when I've come down, and he hadn't barked at me. But he's down there with his head on a swivel, wondering what the, I mean, mine's the same way at the house. He hears every sound outside and lets us know. And that's how we ought to walk in this world. Right. Have your head on a swivel. Know that every corner is another opportunity. The devil set another trap. There's another device of Satan. There's another means whereby he would love to take us down. Mm. And uh, we're not ignorant of his devices. I know, uh, I know a lot of people act like he's just some great, but he's not doing anything <laughs> new. He's only got a few weapons in his arsenal. And the reason he still uses them is because they seem to work so well. But we've been informed against them. We've been empowered against them. We don't have to fall. We don't have to uh, come into uh, his traps. We can keep our head on a swivel. And then not only should we watch, we should withstand. He says, whom resist steadfast in the faith. The word resist, stand in opposition. Make, set yourself in array against the wiles of the devil. Resist him. Steadfastly withstand the devil. Don't give in. Don't give place to the devil, Paul said. Uh, be, be always standing consistently, steadfast in the faith. Uh, this is one of the hardest things for me. I get tired in standing. Mm. Sometimes you're just flat out weary and you're doing everything you know to do and you're fighting tooth and nail and sometimes you get tired and it's just like Moses, you know. He had his arms up and they would have victory and then when he would start to get tired and his arms would fall, the uh, the enemy would start to prevail and somebody came alongside and lifted up his arms and the victory would happen again. It's like that in our Christian life. By the way, that's another reason we need a church. That's another reason we need each other. We get tired in this thing right. and my arms get heavy and I'm glad I've got some brethren who can come alongside and pick them up and help me to continue to stand and to resist steadfast. But how? In the faith. In the faith, first of all, in what we believe, in the doctrine taught to us in the word of God. Earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. But this faith is the impetus whereby we stand, believing God, trusting in God, having all of our confidence in him, the defense that we have. And then we're to do it compassionately. He says in verse 9, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Compassionately. It's too easy sometimes when we see somebody else stop resisting steadfast in the faith to get lifted up in our pride and say, how dare they this? Or all oh, look down on those who've, who've gotten tired and quit. Knowing good and well all along, it could be us. Mm -hmm. Take heed, Peter said, lest ye also fall. Right. And we're prone to it. We're just as capable of it as anybody is. And so he said in Galatians 6, ye that are spiritual, restore such in one. When somebody's given in, when somebody's fallen, when somebody's gotten weak, we ought to have compassion as we stand for them because we're going to need compassion from them when we're trying to stand and not doing so hot, which happens. We forget it, don't we? Then congregation, of course, your brethren, I love that. 
And we've, we've looked at that in other ways before. But then notice verse 10 and 11, the objective of God's grace. What is God doing in all of this? Why is this suffering taking place? Why are, why are we assailed by the end? Why don't the Lord just make it easy? for? Why don't he do what the TV preachers tell us he's, he's doing and just take all the pain and all the hurt and all the process away and just, I mean, why don't he just save us and take us on to heaven and get it over with? Amen. Well, there's things he's doing and there's motivation. There are goals in the mind of God that he will accomplish. First of all, the manifestation of this objective. Notice here in verse 10. But the God of all grace, the God of all grace, we see the name ascribed to God. He's a supreme God, the God. I like the definite article and the capital G, amen. Not a God, there are no other gods. There are things that are worshipped as gods, but there's not any other gods. Sometimes I hear people talk about false religions and things, and they act like that they're really gods, but we've just got a better one. No, we don't just have a better one. We have the only one. He's the God. Amen. Allah's no God. The Hindus have no God. They've got statues. They worship, but that's not God. There is no other God beside him. He's the only one. Amen. The true and the living God. And then his supply of all grace. I like that. It tells us of the diversity of his grace. There's grace for every need. His grace is sufficient. Whatever we face, there's grace to, to, to lead us and guide us and sustain us through it. Uh, people talk about dying and they worry about dying. Well, if you're about to die, I don't think you'll worry about it because God will give you grace. There's grace to go. There's grace to see it sometimes and to wait on the Lord's direction and to stay put and just say, Lord, I'm trying to listen to you. Now, there's grace for all of these things that we need in our life. And there's varying degrees of grace. He has it all. Sometimes I need more than at other times. And uh, sometimes I don't even know how much I need, but God has whatever I need. Then his nature, uh, he says there, the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory. I love that. Here's the glory of God. I don't ever want to get over the glory of God. You think about those who got in the presence of his glory throughout the scriptures. Of course, Moses couldn't see it uh, in, all of its, in all of its unadulterated power, but he got a glimpse. It changed him forever. His face shone. He had to put a veil on. Think about Isaiah. You remember his reaction when he got to see God in his glory. He said, woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean. Man, he said, I'm wicked. When I see the glory of God and his holiness, I realize just how awful I am, what kind of shape I'm really in. And uh, he's, it's his eternal glory. I think about this, so it's his eternal glory. Right. He's not going to share it with anybody. He's not going to let you have any of it. He'll let you enjoy his, and we'll be doing that through all eternity. But it's his glory, and he's not going to share it. And that's part of that. It goes back to that pride and that humility, doesn't it? Uh, doesn't it? We, don't, uh, we don't get to have the glory. If he doesn't get it, nobody's getting it. It's his glory. It's, it's eternal. It's perpetual. There'll never be a time when he's not as glorious as he is even now. He's always been as glorious as he forever will be. I'm glad he doesn't change. But this is what we've been called unto. He has called us unto his eternal glory. Personally, individually, he's called us. Uh, it's purposeful. Unto his eternal glory. The little word unto, it means to set it one again. It indicates a point reached of place, time, or purpose. In other words, God has called us, and the end of that will be that we will enjoy him in his glory. The glory is what he's called us unto. Uh, I think he says in that first, uh, first chapter of the next epistle, he called us unto glory and virtue. His glory is what drew us to himself. And that's where we're headed. It's exclusive. We're called by Christ Jesus. But then the means of this objective. He said, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. So God's ultimate goal is his own glory and our enjoyment of it with him. And it's going to come through suffering. This is the means that God has placed for us to enjoy this glory. This is the only way we get to enjoy it, through suffering. But notice some things about this suffering. 
Ye, after that ye have suffered a while, it means a sensible experience of discomfort or harm or hurt. The realm of these sufferings. Of course, in this epistle, he talks about the trial of their faith. Sufferings can take place in many realms in our life, and I won't deal with that this, this morning. But I love this, the restrictions upon these sufferings. Look what he says. After. After that ye have suffered a while. I'm glad it's not going to be like this forever. Amen. Uh, my grandma always used to, and she took it out of context, and not a lot of people have, but it's still a, it's still a truth. <laughs> this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. They, they got that from, and it came to pass. This too shall pass. After that ye have, I'm glad suffering is not forever. Right. One day the suffering will be over. And then he said, after ye have suffered a while, just a little time, just a little time. If you had 80 years on this planet and all 80 of them <coughs> were littered with suffering 24-7, it's still just little compared to eternity. Mm-hmm. What is your life? It is even a vapor. It appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Mm-hmm. And if you're saved, the only suffering you're ever going to do is in this life, this little tiny space of time. But all eternity, that's going to be over with. And the reasons, why would he do it? First, our maturity, to make you perfect. The, the, the word literally means to fit for oneself. <laughs> God's fitting me for his glory. He's fitting me to stand in his presence. That's amazing. I couldn't do it right now in the shape I'm in. I couldn't. I couldn't handle it. It'd kill me. But everything he's doing in my life is getting me to the place where one day I'll finally be able to really stand in the unfiltered, unadulterated glory of the God of heaven and just bask Mm -hmm. without dissolving into nothing. His glory. Maturity. Establishment. He says, establish you. Just means to place firmly. Listen, when you stand a little, you'll be able to stand a lot. Right. When you withstand a little, the more you'll be able to withstand. That's the idea of the word. You just you're you're placed in a more firm situation. You're confirmed. You're set fast. And then strengthening uh, just simply means to shore up, to make stronger, and then settle you. And I love the word settle. I think this brings us to the consummation of. His eternal glory. He says, settle you. Webster defines his word this way. He says it means to place in a permanent condition after wandering or fluctuation. That sounds like heaven to me. I've been wandering around down here a lot more lately, all this traveling, all this going about, leaving the house. I was in a missions conference a while back, and they were talking to missionaries that had been on fields, different places, and they said, what's your favorite place to go? They were asking all the missionaries this. Some said this country, and some said that country, and they got to me, and I said, home. (laughs) My favorite place to go is home. But you know what? One of these days I really get to go home. And all my trips home here got nothing on what that trip to home is going to be like after wandering and after fluctuation and after the ups and the downs and the hills and the valleys and the trials and the tribulation, we're going to finally get over there and he's going to settle us. Never to be removed, never to travel, never to wander ever again. So our motivation then, in verse number 11, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. All that God does is in order that we may recognize in him and attribute to him and render before him glory and honor. Let me say it again. It's that we may recognize in him that we may attribute to him and render before him glory and honor. We do this by submitting to and standing in all of his dominion The word there denotes power to direct, control, use, and dispose at pleasure. It has the idea of the right of possession and use without being 
accountable. God is accountable to no man. And so in this recognizing his dominion, we're saying, Lord, even if it's the fire, even if it's the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, even if it's a den of lions, even if it's being crucified up down, upside down like Peter was, even if it's being beheaded, you're doing it right and you're still God and you're still glorious. For this activity in the hearts of the saints, there'll be no end forever and ever and then he says, amen. amen. The word amen, the great word. I heard recently, you might have had some studies on that little word, amen. I like what Thayer said about it. He said, it was a custom which passed over from the synagogues to the Christian assemblies that when he who had read or discoursed had offered up solemn prayer to God, the others responded, amen, and thus made the substance of what was uttered their own. Here's what he's saying. Everything he's told us about what God is doing, what he's doing for his glory, whatever it takes to get us ready to settle on that other shore, we say, Lord, let it be so. Amen. Whatever you've got, we're for. Amen. The God of all grace. I'm glad there's enough. Amen. Come on, brother.